This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're talking about the film's storytelling. The theme is narrative. Helen, kick us off. Storytelling is about our incapacity as creatures of language to communicate. All of Todd Solon's work, I think, is really about this theme. The truth of the matter is that it is the very impossibility of language that generates its possibility. In non-fiction, blithering documentarian Toby Oxman hopes to interview Derrida as part of his film about a gormless teenager journeying through his senior year at a suburban US high school. But Derrida isn't just a small jokey motif in his, this film. Storytelling itself is a very Derridian artifact. It is Derridian in the way that it deals with the quote-unquote problem of language. Deconstruction at its core is a critique of the metaphysics of presence, the notion that absence only lies at a point before or after presence. For Derrida, absence is also present within the present itself. In terms of the architecture of the film, there is a notable absence here, an eerie gaping hole. As viewers, we can sense the work's phantom limb. Something has been amputated, aborted from this abrupt two-hander. Storytelling shows us only two parts of its triptych, fiction and non-fiction. It's missing third, autobiography, deleted before the release of the film. Perhaps this is what makes the film feel so strangely compelling, an illusion that involves us, that knits us into its fictive fabric, indicating a secret, invisible excess that we will never be permitted to see. Absence is hard-baked into what is present in the film, just as absence is hard-baked into what is present in language. Derridian Absence operates in a somewhat similar way to Hegel's contradiction, although there are many differences between the two. Derridian thought seeing openings and possibilities in many places, Hegelian thought being more singular and determinate. Either way, both thinkers indicate that an essential knot is intractable to our reality. A cut marks our subjectivity and generates language. Language is a marker of our lacking contradictory world. Language, because it is born of lack, of absence, is only ever an approximation. There is no language that is pure, that is not toxic, that doesn't slip and slide. There is no language that is at one with itself. Unlike in language, a form of unity is found in communication. In nature, these are the grunts and hums and shrieks of the animal kingdom. Language is precisely not communication. It is not genetic. It is not a computer code. It is not an instinct or an imprint on the brain that hurries humans into direct and deliberate communication with one another once they have reached a certain developmental milestone. If it were, it wouldn't be language, and we wouldn't have fiction and non-fiction and poetry and singing and metaphor and jokes. Language is a mistake. Language never does what it says on the tin, and that's why it works. Todd McGowan has theorised extensively on the ethics of comedy, one of these many phenomena only made possible by the greasy juncture of words and meaning. Comedy not only points to the truth of humanity's nobly pathetic position in the world, but also to the lack and therefore excess of language. Lacan commented on a famous joke from Freud about a couple of men who meet on a road in Poland. One man asks the other, why do you tell me you're going to Krakow so that I think you're going to Lemberg when you really are going to Krakow? Lacan tells us that this joke of Freud's shows he understood that language is generative, allowing truth to work in unexpected ways. Truth often takes the guise of a fiction. Further to this, truth often takes the guise of non-fiction. As storytelling shows us, fiction and non-fiction are not oppositional, but rather sit alongside each other and operate through a similar dynamic, that of the incompleteness of language as such. I think it is interesting, in light of this Lacanian notion, that in fiction, Selma Blair's character Vi writes a confessional, very literal piece for her fiction writing class. 
It is about a sexual encounter with her Pulitzer Prize winning teacher. Her classmates are outraged by her piece of writing, criticising it for being too outlandish. Lacan delineates the difference between animals and humans using the analogy of hunting. Animals pursued by a hunter leave tracks. Slyer animals are able to conceal their tracks or leave decoys. It is up to the wily hunter to decipher these illusions. Lacan continues that there is only one kind of quote-unquote animal that can leave, the true leave true tracks that are intended to be read as false, human beings. Only humans are able to hide the truth in the truth. As the Groucho Marx quote goes, one that Zizek often recounts, he might look like an idiot, sound like an idiot, but don't be fooled, he really is an idiot. Perhaps Vi's classmates are so outraged at her story, not because she's making up a grotesque and unbelievable tale, but rather because she, is pre she precisely isn't. After all, the photos that Vi finds in her professor's apartment show that many of her fellow coursemates have found themselves in a similar submissive situation. Rather, perhaps they are outraged precisely because they know she is telling the truth, and she has put that truth in the wrong register, the truth. In any event, language never says, says what it says. It always fails. It never hits the nail on the head, even when it does. And language works, or is generative, of all kinds of humour, art, and creativity, precisely because it doesn't. All right, Nina, you're up. Okay. What would it be like to live in a world in which everybody said exactly what they thought all the time? Properly honest or utterly terrifying? After brief consideration, most people would probably opt for casual dishonesty. Understanding that knowing what your friends and family truly thought about your life, your character and everything else would be too much to bear. The social compact is a fragile and unstable thing suspended by a thread over an abyss of awkwardness. It is this awkwardness, the bluntness of the non-demanded but entirely honest statement, that is the relentless idea that lies behind the work of Todd Solondz, um, who we're looking at today. Uh, critics often focus on the scandalous nature of Solondz's themes, uh, paedophilia and other taboo forms of sexual behaviour, childhood and early teenage sexuality, abortion, depression, suicide and so on. But I think Solondz's films are not simply exercises in shock. They represent a serious attempt to come to terms with the hypocrisy of everyday life and language. They create an affect somewhere between discomfort and a sort of excruciating um, tension. And I think rewatching st storytelling uh, again, um, I was struck by this, the sort of specificity of the mood that he conjures up, what, what's peculiar to his films uh, in particular, um, because at the same time he's... Um, in a sort of quasi tradition of sort of 90s, early 2000s kind of black comedies, some of which we've already uh, looked at um, in this podcast. Storytelling um, from 2001 is an important contribution to what we might call a cinema of awkwardness, where characters out of step with the world are portrayed in all of their unhappiness. And here we should understand unhappiness in all of its senses, unfortunate, miserable, but also capable of causing trouble. Perversely, Solon's most sympathetic characters are perhaps those unable to change their behaviour, no, no matter how many resolutions and lifestyle changes they make. At the heart of America's dream that anyone can remake themselves in whichever image um, they, they choose uh, lies an uncomfortable truth. Um, the character and the stories that we tell about ourselves are some kind of destiny. I think Solon's characters are often profoundly doomed, Yet in the midst of his vision 
of a stilted, hypocritical universe lies a genuine pathos and sympathy for those unable or unwilling to belong. His films are also quite funny. As he puts it himself in an interview from 2005, So far, at least, I haven't found a way to tell my kind of stories without making them both sad and funny. And the comedy in my movies, among other things, enables me to deal with the forbidden. When part of what you're trying to get at is the truth hidden under a taboo, or when you want to nail a hypocrisy, laughter is a very useful tool. I want to show the painful side of existence, but there is no question I also want to make people laugh. Positioning Solons in the cinematic landscape and in relation to what we could call the age of irony, um, the 1990s and to a lesser extent perhaps the early 2000s, um, at least up until probably September the 11th, um, 2001, which we would have to say challenges or changes this relation to irony um, in, in multiple ways. Um, it's quite complicated. Um, as I say, his films have tended to attract a series of negative epithets. He's a very kind of uh, Marmite filmmaker, you might say. Um, they're often described as misanthropic, pessimistic, cruel, exploitative, prurient, glib. Um, and certainly they kind of deal with these films. They're, they're films about these sorts of things. Uh, and they're also a kind of critique of cinema and the documentary filmmaker, for example, in, in storytelling. Um, but as critics often ask, do they fall into the trap of merely emulating this culture or do they in fact critique it, albeit in oblique, minimal ways? Um, the 90s were in some respects a sort of empty, nothingy kind of de- decade, um, truly postmodern, although I think we're actually living through postmodernity in a slightly more intense way now. I think the 90s were the the uh, the sort of prediction of a certain, uh, what postmodernity might mean. Um, Thus, the first Gulf War was supposed to be closer to the clinical operations of a computer game than earlier deadly conflicts, um, and the misogyny of publications such as Vice and Lads magazines were sort of acceptable at this time because precisely of their ironic character. We don't really mean it, they say. Um, Besides, hasn't the time come to lighten up about these things? Um, We could do with going back to that at this this point, I think. so if identity politics uh, saw a sort of blossoming after the 1990s, um, we could say that perhaps these films and Todd Solondz would be uh, first amongst them, um, reflect a kind of last doomed attempt to hold on to any kind of distinctiveness um, it, that sort of inherent in the, the potentiality of, of nihilism, but also in particular of narrative. And I was reminded of the fact that um, Gen X by Douglas Copeland and many of, of Douglas Copeland's stories are about precisely telling stories. And this was an absolute obsession in the 1990s. You had Jeanette Winterson use this phrase constantly about telling stories. And, you know, there's a real kind of recognition of the um, the role of self-narrativizing in the construction of identity. Um but not, but that wasn't to reduce identity. It was simply that everyone kind of had a story to tell somehow, and that storytelling was in a way the way in which meaning was constructed. And I think you can also see this argument in, in thinkers like um, Alistair McIntyre as well, um, <laughs> strangely. Um, so just a little bit to say about the, the suburbs, because I think it's interesting, this idea of where stories actually happen or where they're permitted to happen. And in a way... Um, in the second half, at least, of storytelling, there's a sense in which um, the suburbs are material for a story, but they are not themselves worthy of perhaps stories in their own uh, right. 
Um, I think many of his sub- suburban scenarios follow a fairly common pattern in his film, middle to upper middle class Jewish families, often employing cleaners or housekeepers, concerned with their children's future, um, if often blindly oblivious to their present. He'll never get into a good school now. It will look good on your college resume. Um, these common kind of phrases from the parents. Um, so the suburbs are this kind of aspirational breeding ga- ground for the uh, for the upwardly mobile, but it's not in the suburbs that these stories will hopefully unfold. In 1921, Lewis Mumford described the suburbs as the negation of the negation. Um, if the 19th century American town negated the European model of the city, then suburbia was what came after the town, a kind of anti-city. Uh, through and through. And I think Solens plays off of this negative space of suburbia and its kind of anti-cities insecurities by reveling in his own character's uh, anxieties. So in the second part of storytelling entitled Non-Fiction, um, Toby Oxman, played by Paul uh, Giamatti, who's an amazing actor, um, a middle-aged New York filmmaker returns to New Jersey to make a film on teenage life in suburbia as he tells an uninterested old school friend on the phone in the opening scene. As he tells her... It's kind of an explanation of the psyche, of its mythology. I wrote to Derrida to see if he'd like to do the narration, but everything is still kind of in development on this point. I work in a shoe store right now. The pathetic fall of Derrida to shoe store is a little like the rather bluntly um, deconstructionist fiction, non-fiction elements of that film as a whole. The first part concerns a creative writing course, the second Oxman's attempt to make his documentary about a slacker student nicknamed Scooby from a rich suburban Jewish family. Oxman's return to the suburbs is shot through with his own cultural disgust and fascination. Um, I think uh, particularly in the sort of um, depiction in the first part of the kind of uh, the short, the story, the creative writing class where one of the characters, well, the um, one of the characters says, this is a little mean spirited of uh, one of Vi's stories Um it's as if Solens is directly quoting his own negative reviews through the mouthpiece of minor characters. When Oxman shows, therefore, an early version of his documentary to a female friend of his, she says it seems glib and facile to make fun of how idiotic these people are. Oxman responds, but I'm not making fun. I'm showing how it really is. You're showing how superior you are to your subject, she says. No, but I like these people, he responds. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I love them. It's hard not to imagine this is Solon's voice here in a way, defending his vision of suburbanites. Um, So despite the fear that it is the city that will corrupt, the suburban family is nevertheless the breeding ground for a whole host of um, pathologies, often sexual, paedophilia, perversion, frigidity, and he explores this in Happiness and uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse and other of his uh, films. Um, and I think in a, in a sort of paradoxical way, it's like telling these uh, incredibly unpleasant um, stories um, permits the kind of, um, I, sp- I suppose, a critical reinterpretation of the relationship between the city and the and the suburbs in the American fantasy. And 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 perhaps one of the conclusions of his films is that kind of neither are um, have any future. In them, neither the city, which is basically impossible to live in uh, for financial reasons, nor the suburbs, which are impossible to live in for cultural reasons. Um, so again, we're confronted with a kind of uh, ironic end of a certain kind of American uh, dream, and uh, nothing other than uh, a series of kind of disconnected and and perhaps miserable and delusional uh, stories. All right. So now it's my turn. Storytelling tells two different stories about storytelling. 
In the first, a creative writing professor bluntly tells his students that their stories are no good. He humiliates a disabled boy in front of the class. The boy's girlfriend sits right beside him. She fails to defend his work, and the boy dumps her over it. She retreats to a bar where she runs into the professor. She directly asks him if he thinks she has anything to offer as a writer. He tells her she does not. Desperate to salvage her smoldering self-esteem, she has sex with him. She writes a new story about these events, and the professor allows the other students to tear it to pieces. In the second story, a documentary filmmaker makes a film about a suburban family's attempt to get their reluctant teen to go to college. The teen appears passive, perhaps even cool, but he harbors an extremely lame dream. He wants to host a talk show like his hero Conan O'Brien. The teen has two younger brothers. The first is a football player who becomes a vegetable after a hard hit. The second is a fifth grader who tries to impress his parents by getting good grades. The family also has a live-in maid named Consuela. Despite the fifth grader's strong academic performance, he is completely unable to understand Consuela's circumstances. Her poverty is a mystery to him. When the fifth grader finds Consuela crying because her grandson has been executed for rape and murder, he tells her the grandson probably deserved it and demands she clean up some juice he spilled. A few days later, the fifth grader persuades his dad to fire Consuela for laziness. At this point, the documentary filmmaker is ready to screen his work. The teen manages to get himself to the screening, only to find that it mercilessly mocks his superficiality. While he's seeing the movie, Consuela sneaks into the house and rigs it to explode. The teen returns home to find his whole family's dead. The documentary filmmaker is on the scene and tries to apologize to the teen for the tragedy. In his self-absorption, the teen thinks the apology is for the film and tells the director not to worry because the film is sure to be a hit. Oh, and did I mention the teen gets into Princeton? Before dying in the fire, his father made a few calls. Both stories are about the exploitative character of narrative. In the first story, the disabled boy exploits his own condition to write a trite story. The professor exploits his student's need to impress him to get laid. The girl exploits her experience with the professor to write a fresh story. In the second story, the filmmaker worries he's exploiting the family to make a compelling movie, while the teen tries to use the filmmaker to get famous and get himself that talk show. All of these forms of exploitation feel rather petty in the face of Consuela's situation. She's worked to exhaustion, with no time even to develop hobbies, forced to wait on a merciless fifth grader who eventually has her thrown out on the street anyway. All of these creative people, whatever their background, depend ultimately on the hard labor of people like Consuela. In the first story, the creative writing students mercilessly accuse one another of every kind of bigotry imaginable, all because of the way they depict fictional characters. The students assume that the way they depict their characters matters, that their work has influence, that negative portrayals of members of various groups will in some way encourage people to think the wrong kinds of thoughts about these groups. But in the second story, it's suggested that what really determines who gets into college and who gets to sit in those creative writing classes is one's class position. The teen gets into Princeton on legacy, even though his SAT scores are appalling. He imagines he can be the next Conan O'Brien because of connections, and he may not be wrong. He may be useless, but it doesn't matter, and the fame the documentary buys him might be just the ticket. The documentary filmmaker went to college and tried to be an actor, and when he failed, he tried law, and when he failed again, he ended up in film. 
He hates the university system for failing to deliver him a successful life, but he continues to be afforded opportunities to try different careers. Consuela's grandson didn't get a second chance. He got the gas chamber. At one point, the fifth grader asks Consuela to define rape. She says it's when you love someone and they don't love you back and you do something about it. Should we feel that Solans, the real director of this film, is expecting is exploiting rape victims with such a flippant line? Maybe art isn't politically what it's cracked up to be. Maybe the real exploitation happens off the page and off the screen, in the real world, to real people. Art is not usually a political act. Political acts create and wield power. They issue decisions. Art does not decide. It merely provokes. It can be politically weaponized. But when it is weaponized, it is turned into an instrument. It ceases to exist for its own sake and becomes a tool. For this reason, art cannot rescue Consuela. Art which would demand her emancipation would not be art at all. All art can do is present us with sets of thoughtful provocations about situations like hers and the systems which create them. The work of emancipating Consuela is political work, work which requires not merely that Consuela be discussed, but that Consuela participate. Of course, if we let Consuela participate, we wouldn't like what she'd do. We don't like her definition of rape. We don't like her willingness to commit arson. Before too long, we'd grow tired of hearing from her. Most of the people who make the decisions about who gets to participate are just adult versions of that fifth grader. You can often teach an honors student to sound woke, but only rarely will an honors student abandon the idea that they were in honors because they were more deserving than the other kids. When a system is the source of your self-esteem, it cannot be abandoned. Meritocracies reproduce themselves by telling each generation of elites precisely what they want to hear, that they have power because they're better than other people. The art students will continue to debate whether they're exploiting their characters, while conveniently ignoring the degree to which they exploit people in real life. They live to dunk on each other in the classroom, but they save their greatest abuses for those who are not even permitted to play the game. Very true. <laughs> uh, it's funny, the whole Consuelo um, backstory is very funny and sad, and her definition of rape is quite something. But um, she was who reminds me, actually, I don't know if you guys, um, obviously there's the quite blatant bit in nonfiction where he's filming a piece of rubbish. So I'm guessing this film came out like a year after, um, or two years after, what's the face? So there's lots of callbacks, and then there have been lots of callbacks. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched Girls, but um, there's a whole part of Girls that takes place in a creative writing course. It's quite similar to, to that. Well, a similar setting, but very different, actually. Um, but <laughs> uh, Family Guy, I think they even have the character called Consuelo, who is drawn quite similarly to this character. Um, but yes, it's... Uh, very, very good, well-observed little section with the uh, stuck-up fifth grader. Quite amazing. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, I really take um, Benjamin's point. And I think it's, it's, I suppose it's quite important at this point that there still can be a distinction drawn between the stories people are sort of telling themselves, like precisely the self-justifying stories about who they are and why they're important, um, and those stories which um, aren't able to be told or um, make us really uncomfortable, right? So that I think one of the, the implications of Solon's work as a whole is to say, look, you feel uncomfortable watching this, but that's nothing compared to, you know, 
the sort of real um, horror <laughs> that, that that kind of subtends social relations altogether, right? So, um, you know, I think it's it's a kind of zooming out from these sort of like yeah bourgeois problems or these you know into a kind of global picture. And irony, I suppose, is one of these techniques that can be used in the service of. Um, understanding those sort of deeper horrors i suppose you know so that it that you can't simply dismiss the use of irony and solons and others from this period as simply um nihilism you know that it actually but it in fact serves a function and it's i think it's fascinating in the years since i mean we're now talking kind of 20 years ago i suppose these these films um literally 20 years ago isn't it from storytelling um which is crazy, <laughs> but how much the the obsession with representation and storytelling and identity has come to you know totally subsume the discursive field, such that it's almost impossible to talk about real relations of ex- exploitation and 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 so on, and you know things like auto fiction in the realm of literature have become so dominant on on the one hand because um, it. Uh, means that people won't get called out for speaking about things beyond their expertise. So it's like if I write a thinly veiled account of my own life, how can anyone criticise me? Which is sort of um, also in the first part of storytelling. But it's but it's also so uh, limited because it's literally saying, well, literature has no other function other than as a sort of pure excretion, uh, narcissistic excrescence. And I, you know, I mean, I've written autofiction too, so I'm hardly exempt. No, no one's necessarily exempt from this thing. So what we lack is is uh, literature or fiction or art that te- that tells us something uh, bigger. Gen- you know, they, it does exist, but it's kind of um, sort of quite rare, precisely because the the risk of being kind of getting it wrong or being attacked for getting it wrong is so great that I think there's, you know, things are very um, uh, fearful. And it's much, much easier, of course, to focus on representation and identity. I was speaking to a friend this morning who was brought up in foster care and she's on various forums and so on. And she says that the people on these forums tend to be completely obsessed with the way in which foster children are represented on TV shows, right? As opposed to any of the other kind of economic questions or the questions about care homes and care in the UK, like the um, Rotherham scandal and various things, that they're completely obsessed with how foster kids are depicted in, in particular TV shows. And she says it drives her mental because it's like got nothing, nothing to do with class or, you know, geography or particular family structures, but rather is this perceived offence. And I, I wonder if it, as a lot of the time it's like, it's too horrible to think about what's actually going on. Exactly. And I think this, going back to this idea of like, you know, what's the joke? You know, he might look like an idiot, sound like an idiot, but don't be fooled, he really is an idiot. Like the truth is right in front of our eyes. And it's amazing. It's, it hides in plain sight. And it is, as you say, it's too, it's too, too horrible. <laughs> You know, it's right there hiding in plain sight and it's too horrible for us to deal with. But the identity thing, you know, and, and well, first of all, the, the autofiction thing, like, talk, going back to the sort of Lena Dunham, obviously she became uh, well known through fictionalizing herself or whatever. And this, this is like a massive trend and it is so rare now, especially in sort of, you know, emerging filmmakers, for, for people to be making universalist work or work that isn't about themselves. It's kind of astonishing. But in terms of, you know, this obsession with representation and correctly delineating the um, nature of an individual group or finding the right words or how words eventually become the thing that is offensive, having been the newly appointed nice word, 
it is a precise, you know, I think intersectionality is the symptom of that failure. The fact that you have to keep tacking on new additions, you know, it just, it doesn't work. You can never get there. <laughs> you can never get there. Well, I think that the, the thing that people really seem to miss is that if you're going to have everybody make their films and their stories about themselves, then every film and every story will be about storytellers. They'll all be about writers. They'll all be about directors, right? And and those directors and writers can have every kind of genitalia and be every color of the <laughs> rainbow. They all occupy the same social role. And they're all a lot more like each other than they are different. Yeah, that's so, that's totally correct. And then, then this culture becomes even more kind of narcissistic and, uh, uh, yeah, and, and dominated by this particular type of character type. Um yeah, I mean, it, at this point, it's it's almost like you would almost want a return to the kind of like socialist realist stories of like, I don't know, like Zola or like 1930s or something where people are trying to kind of depict the reality of the, you know, the horror of capitalism or industrialism or, you know, you don't have those kind of so much of these grand narratives anymore. Everyone's just this disaffected, nihilistic, kind of atomized you know, listless, libidinal subject. Well, that's what I loved about Blue Collar when we did Blue yeah. Collar a few weeks back. And, of course, that came out in the 70s. It's not very easy to find a whole lot like that. No. <laughs> it's interesting because you were talking about how, yes, if we are doing this sort of autofiction, you're only permitted to talk about your, your own background, then we're just going to have a, a whole, you know, traffic jam of sameness. And, of course, one of the ways to get around it is this, um, not taking into account class, but rather mere aesthetics of, you know, um, other things which, you know, there, are, there can be for historical contingent reasons, like elision of those two factors. But what you end up are these, uh, with are these sort of like um, logically contorted kind of um, access schemes that only are accessible to those who are of the same class, but of a particular aesthetic group. Um, a friend of mine who's a, uh, director was posting recently about the shadowing scheme that he was doing um, and the person who was shadowing him you know as an emerging female director was already an extremely famous actress in her own right so the only people who are able to access those schemes and also again because we're, we're swimming in the waters of meritocracy you know the illusion of meritocracy of course you get this this hideous contradiction between um, this pretended denial of meritocracy at the same time as instigating meritocracy. So you have to navigate these waters. And some people I know are very good at it, where you, you, both, you, you both justify yourself against the call of meritocracy and also justify yourself against its opposite at the same time in order to be chosen for these things, um, which is just a silly, contorted you know, falsity in its own right. Because the selection criteria is all a model. So the way that you get selected is to not at all be principled in the way that you approach it, mm -hmm. but to just go with the flow. And that's yeah. what people do. Yeah, you have to be, you have to at the same time somehow say that you're extremely talented and successful and have already done all these different things at the same time as saying that you are unable to be successful because you haven't had the opportunities because of the way you look. It's quite quite strange. Yeah. So at any rate, I thought that the Consuela character really elevated this film yeah. and just took it to a whole 
different level. It was such a delightful level of self-awareness. And then as, you know, as they showed that image of the house where the camera just stays on the house and I'm going, oh, is he going to blow up the house? Is he going to blow it up? And of course he doesn't. But you know that the house does blow up because there's a whole fire, but I'm sure that there wasn't the budget to actually blow up the house. (laughs) But I was waiting for it. And of course they make you wait for it because that's Mm. what you... I thought that was just really terrific filmmaking. And to to have her go uh, apply the same logic which she applied to defend her grandson and, and say, well, I'm going to do something about it. And that, that doing something is to blow up the house. I thought that was just just a <laughs> wonderful way to end this film. Yeah. And it's interesting, the kind of discomfort that you're saying, like both formally and in terms of the, you know, the characters' interactions and the and the kind of you know, the horrible sort of tension in most conversations and most scenes um, across all of his films, actually, is is so at odds with this idea of, you know, n- I don't feel comfortable with that or, you know, safe spaces or whatever, or this idea that any micro form of aggression or, um, you know, social discomfort is some big problem. You know, and and actually, it's like saying no, no. Social life is is absolutely awkward all the time. Like, there's no getting absolutely. away from it. Like, you know, this is this is how it is actually. And that language, you know, like most communication is miscommunication, as Lacan would say. That everyone's desires is, are at odds. I mean, the other amazingly awkward um, scene, or the, one of the many, is when Scooby basically says to his parents, like, if it wasn't for Hitler, you wouldn't have met, and they can't quite. <laughs> take this sort of historical logic and they simply don't know what to do with him other than to send him to his room um and these kind of you know <laughs> and he, he's sort of being completely sincere in his reasoning right yeah. he's just thinking oh right okay so this is our history and you know um <laughs> and yeah these kind of like i don't know these terrible aspects of everybody's existence that in a way don't make sense and when you try to make sense of them they they have you know, multiple meanings, often kind of horrific meanings. Um, yeah. yeah. What can you do with a person once you are no longer willing to continue to talk to them? When you're no longer willing to use language, what can you do? All you can do is send the kid to his room, leave the table, uh, blow up the house. <laughs> you're, you're left with just force. It's either either we talk and we, we make an effort or we don't. And I love how the the possibility of not doing it is in this film. Mm. But it, to go back to this idea of autofiction, you know, there is this, there is actually, um, uh, I did a dissertation on this years ago, LOL. Um, there's a sort of emerging thing called autoethnography, so uh, a fictive exploration of, you know, yourself in relation to your community through through your um, own narrative, for example. And the thing is that all of these things that sort of rely on the, the idea or the illusion of essence, and there is no essence, you know, there's no, there's no communication when you're a creature of language, because we're not creatures of essence, you know, the only essence is contradiction. So, you know, it's, uh, it's just this, this, this fool's errand. But it's interesting at the same time, if you actually try to talk about things having essences or there being an essence to being a man or a woman or something, this is like absolute heresy. Like you you sort of, you know, the moment you start talking about these things, you're liable to be kind of, you know, destroyed. 
The thing is that I would say, because this is the thing, I think, you know, humans are the cause of the unconscious, are, are like, are divided into two. You know, you have biological reality and then you have this sort of transcendent overattachment. And so there's no, <laughs> there's no, S, but it's like the same thing as what I was saying with language. It's like, because there is no language or there's no, um, there's no communication in language is precisely what makes it possible to be language, you know? So it's like, First of all, at the same time, there can be no essence and there can be essence at the same time because we live in a contradictory universe. So this is the thing I find really strange about the whole uh, banning of people who say, well, yes, there is biological essence, because to say that there's biological essence doesn't mean that there isn't no, bi there's no essence at a sort of a, a different transcendental level, you know, in a level of like the absolute. They, they can be true at the same time. I think that the culture war really is two essentialisms arguing with each other and you can't really argue when you're dealing with essentialisms because an essentialism is an assertion of a particular that a particular thing just is a particular way that's just what it is that's just what its nature is and there's no real negotiation with an essential claim of that kind and so the reason that the culture war is so completely useless is that they're just conflicting ontological assertions about what exists what the categories are, what the contents of those categories are. So you can't have an interesting conversation about what's possible for a given person in a given situation because there's no attentiveness to context. There's no interest in the actual particularity of a person in a given situation dealing with specific problems. It's just a war over categories, an endless war over categories that's indifferent to real problems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I wonder, I mean, how much particular discourses are to blame, if you like, for the current situation we find ourselves in. And I do, I mean, as much as I, you know, love psychoanalysis and, you know, I attend analysis, I wonder if psychoanalysis in some ways has, has some responsibility for <laughs> some of the... Well, <laughs> I, I would argue that the trouble is that psychoanalysis is actually precise, is completely precise. And that the issue, because you see this with, you know, um, with, you know, like Jordan Peterson's critique of like cultural Marxism or whatever. But I think that there is like a misrecognition of what psychoanalysis is. And you see it like so much in, in discourse and like the way that Lacan is interpreted and all this mm. kind of stuff. It's like, I don't think Lacan has anything to do with, you know, because basically what, what, all that psychoanalysis is basically saying is that there is a materialism to the unconscious because the unconscious can be logically justified by a material reality to the way that our first few years are as bipedal mammals who stand up, basically. So the thing is, it's like we, we you know, because there's this thing of our essence is like, you know, it's, we, we're thrown into this chaotic universe. And we require something to engage with in order to have this illusion to be able to get by in this world. But beyond that, I guess all, all I'm saying is that basically I think psychoanalysis is completely material, but it just accounts for a second birth outside the womb. But that's it, you know? But, that, but I do, but psychoanalysis definitely has been turned on its head, mm. you know? Well, it's also, I think, a lot of, of 
the kind of modern theories that emerged in response to the problem of the French Revolution, the problem that there is this antagonism between individual and community, that these things no longer seem to neatly go together, that individual and community no longer seem to be neatly coextensive in the ancient way. Uh, I think that all of these kind of modern theories, and psychoanalysis is one of them, are an attempt to deal with that problem of that estrangement and to rectify it in some way. And when this work was originally being done in the 19th century, I think there was a lot more awareness at that time of what the problem was that these methods were trying to solve. There, There was an awareness on Hegel's part, certainly, that there was this estrangement that had grown up, that there was this problem that had grown up that came out of the decay of the old kind of society and the inability to find a social replacement that was equally cohesive. What has happened in the 20th century, and especially more recently, is that the problem that all of this modern theory was trying to solve has been forgotten. A lot of people have been born into these modern theories under the premise that they are all there is, that there was never anything else or anything before them apart from bad stuff, apart from theocratic bigotry of varying kinds. And so if you don't know what problems modern ideas were trying to solve, Mm. if you take it as a given that modern society is better in a kind of Whig progressive way or that it is functional or is coherent, then none of this stuff will make any sense because all of this stuff is about dealing with contradictions which emerged from a historical process. And all of it comes out of recognizing modernity as a contradictory situation. Uh, yeah. Present present readers no longer read modernity that way. They just think it's better and that it works. Or, or at the same time, I mean, there's a kind of presentism which also similarly, simultaneously says that that political activism must be based on a, on a mood of urgency, of of great radicalism, and various things must be abolished or destroyed. But there's no no understanding of the historical <laughs> like background. So it's simply it's simply like okay, the world is all that is the case in this in this way, but but it's wrong and must be changed. Um, and that all human beings who came before were somehow. Uh, you know, deficient in some way or another, or held terrible ideas, and we can learn nothing from any of that, any of the previous human beings that came before us, even through the study of literature or anything else, because these things are all intensely corrupted or tainted by um, the social context. I mean, it's like an absolutely bizarre kind of um, sort of. I mean, not not even Marxism. I mean, this is not what Marxism says at all. I mean, Mar- actual Marxism pays careful and close attention to history um, <laughs> and material reality. Um, so you can't really say it's that. Um, I Yeah, nor is it sort of straightforwardly a religion, although many people would like to say that too. I mean, there's something kind of, um, you know, a bit like a religion, but obviously it lacks all of these things like forgiveness, atonement, and, you know, a God or uh, any other plane on which this is happening. So it's kind of completely imminent. So it's sort of Gnostic and strange in that way. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, there, there is a kind of collective psychoanalytic way of trying to understand bad feeling, I suppose. It's like, why is there so such bad feeling amongst so many people? I mean, is it, is it purely just projection of their own sort of miserable, guilt-ridden 
state you know onto the world such that it reflects back on to them and they think they can do something about it i think that a lot of it is is very stoic a lot of it is is a kind of claim that uh, nature and uh, the god and 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 the godhead insofar as there is such a godhead are coextensive and therefore we can derive from nature principles about how we ought to live uh, on the one hand and uh, and then, so we're, we're supposed to transcend our context because we have a kind of rational faculty that allows us to build virtue independent from the material universe, and that that's all that matters, and therefore we can transcend the context. So the, the narrative is that there's a kind of taint in history, that this taint in history has given us a, a fundamentally evil context, but that we can, through cultivating virtue, transcend this context and uh, make the world better. So, of course, the present is necessarily much better than the past. There's nothing to be learned from the past, but also the present is is tainted by the past. So, <laughs> there is both uh, an embrace and a denial of the connection between the past to the present. So, the past doesn't give us any any useful stuff to think about. All it does is taint, and all we can do is be perpetually trying to relieve the taint of the past through a stoic pursuit of virtue. And that stoic pursuit of virtue now takes the form of woke virtue signaling. It's very much like, we were describing it's very much like the bad infinite, Hegel's bad infinite. And I guess this is the thing with the discovery of the nature of subjectivity in psychoanalysis. It's like, it's very dialectic like this, just because I think so much of the, the stuff that's ruined everything is stuck on the opening of psychoanalysis, like the first instant, but it doesn't actually look at the way that it loops together. And the bad infinite, you know, we are stuck in this bad infinite. And I think this speaks to the, the nation of, like I always say, that capitalism is a secular religion and how all these things operate within the religious thing. Because it all folds back into itself in terms of this religious um, way, this religious kind of mode, it is this perpetual forward motion. And it's just, we get no reprieve. It's like our God is a commodity that we can, we can get to close the gap. And our forgiveness is in um, being a good uh obedient member of the market according to the invisible hand who which indicates to us you know through this neurotic sort of big other oh we are we are obedient and we're good because we've risen up the sort of meritocratic chain and so it all sort of feeds into itself but it's this perpetual forward motion that just never ends and we're just sort of going towards this bad infinite and we need to find a way and I think in psychoanalysis you have this kind of like reprieve to be able to get into some kind of good infinite one of the reasons I like the Stoicism comparison is that it's both a comparison which highlights the religious aspect, but also highlights the non-religious aspect. At different points in the history of thought, Stoicism has been viewed as a kind of theology and as a kind of atheism mm -hmm. because of its equation of God with nature or with the natural world itself. And this emphasis on essential categories, on what are the categories that exist in nature Right. Even if there's some kind of, of nominal concession to the idea that they're socially constructed, the treatment of them nonetheless in, in point of practice as facts, as factual categories that we have to acknowledge. And if we don't acknowledge them, then we're engaged in some kind of color blindness or gender blindness or some kind of denialism of a reality. Right. Uh, I think that there's something enlightening about viewing it as a kind of, of stoic of stoic thing. And then I, I really like the comparison too, because it highlights, you know, the right is so into stoicism and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and all of that. But 
what they're what they're doing is just a, a different face of the same thing. They're just arguing okay. about what the nature is, what the categories are, what the essence is that has to be transcended through virtue signaling. And it's just different kinds of virtue signaling at play. I know I think I think the Jordan Peterson logic is exactly the same logic as the SJW logic. Um, there's sort of cosmic balance in both. I think it's interesting to go back to the Solons in the 90s situation where you, you know, I mean, literally Vice magazine, I mean, li- there couldn't be anything more nominally opposed to the idea of virtue. Um, and it seemed like, you know, at a, this historical moment that actually being after virtue <laughs> or post-virtue, um, there was a sort of liberating dimension to it, even though it was also kind of nihilistic, right? So that that to, that in a way that, you know, modernity and capitalism had led up to this point where virtue and any kind of virtue just made no sense anymore. You know, that, that it wasn't even about specific virtues like loyalty or I don't know, whatever, honor or I don't know, kindness. And, and, you know, we have to say that virtue was gen, generally historically sexually differentiated. There were different virtues for men than there were for women. Um, and I think this, that's still an assumption, but it's not so explored today. Like this, I, this kind of imperative that women have, must be kind is still hugely dominant as a kind of, you know, sort of pressure, social pressure, um, in multiple, uh, ways. But I think that there is something kind of, you know, in Solons and in this nineties and early two thousand moment where there's a kind of genuine exploration of like, well, what if, um, I don't know. What if the, we're all kind of tainted, um, and the only thing to do is kind of uh, deeply, darkly embrace it in a certain way to recognise this this kind of horror, and that we're all part of it, and that we're all, um, you know, we're all awful in a way to somebody else. Like, and we don't necessarily know. We can't necessarily see it. Like, we think we're being a particular kind of way, but actually, we're we're actually being deeply kind of. Um, boring or offensive or like annoying to to others absolutely absolutely I entirely agree with you and I think this is like how the individual it going to psychoanalysis is a portal to the universal because that is like actually the universal condition and yeah there's sort of it's funny it is funny though because um, I don't know if you saw like a couple of weeks ago there was this psychoanalytic paper written although I looked this guy up on the internet and he had a yin yang on his um, on his like bio page, and I was like, if anything is anti psychoanalytic, it is cosmic balance of the yin and yang, you know. Anyway, but he, he was saying how um, it was a paper that was like, whiteness is a par- parasitic or something, whiteness is this parasitic. But like, what the fuck is whiteness, you know? <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, and also it's just through the same completely par- um, capitalistic logic anyway, you know, the sort of um, the virtue of being. Um, of defining oneself as unvirtuous, you know, by being white, whatever. Um, mm. But there was something else in what you were saying that I entirely agree with. Yeah, I think I think this is absolutely it. <laughs> we're all tainted. And maybe this is a bit of a provocative question, but in terms of like, I don't know what they call themselves, the post-left or the people who've like given up on the left or whatever entirely. Um, and obviously it's a, it's a complicated thing. Is often, do you think that there is maybe a denial within that as well that we are all tainted and there's a desire to make enemies of those that are perceived to be more tainted than those who are beyond the taint of being a like knobbish leftist? I don't know. I think we're all tainted by the market and we're all tainted. Well, I think that, that uh, 
you know, we're kind of sounding a little bit like Plato or Augustine at this point. And the usual objection from Plato or Augustine to the Stoics is precisely this, that they deny that we are all fundamentally uh, either due to original sin for Augustine or due to the inherent flaws of, of embodied beings uh, for Plato, in some ways flawed, in some ways unable to be perfect. And the Stoic sage is perfect. The Stoic sage has apatheia in this life uh, and is able to have that transcendental triumph over all of the things that are wrong, uh, not by creating a society that lifts up everybody or makes it possible for people to live better lives, but just by personally being better than everybody else, <laughs> better, better than everybody else, just by being the best and the most virtuous, right? And that's the core of the problem with Stoicism and why for so many centuries it was accused of being a prideful, prideful thing. I've been recently reading uh, Christopher Brooks' book, Philosophic Pride, mm. Stoicism and Political Thought from Lipsius to Rousseau. So this is a little bit why it's on my mind today. <laughs> uh, but just the, the enormous, enormous impact of that kind of thinking on modern political thought, initially in a quite uh, self-acknowledging way. And I think that, you know, the, the point's been made that, uh, you know, McIntyre makes this point about virtue and virtue having kind of gone out and, and having been forgotten and, and how we can't understand it. I think that in part, it was the Stoics themselves who first began to bastardize it because it was the Stoics who thought that virtue was about transcending human frailty and human foibles. It was never about that. Virtue was always you know, for Aristotle and Plato, who came before the Stoics, virtue was about performing a role well. It was about being able to be part of a society in a functional way. It was never about becoming a god or transcending the human condition or being better than other people. And there were always different virtues. There was the virtue of this craft, the virtue of that craft. What's the virtue of this, the virtue of that? Virtues had contexts. And for the mm -hmm. Stoics, it's, well, there's, there's human nature and there's humans are supposed to uh, conform to their nature, which is to be reasonable, right? All we've done now is said that there are multiple different human natures and they have different colors and they have different genitals and they all have different natures and they all have a quest to transcend uh, human frailty. We haven't come back to a view which actually embeds people yeah. in a context which recognizes the role which context plays in constructing what is possible for people. And I think the thing that liberalism loves about this shit is liberalism loves to just pin shit on the individual yeah. as a way of opposing the political. There's a very good example of this in, in terms of the shift from the role, um, the historical role, the social role, to this idea of, like, of being the best version of yourself. And actually the kind of horror of having to be like yourself, which without any social role whatsoever, like something that's like hyper individualism, which is somehow based on nothing other than your, your name and your contingent existence and has no bearing, no relation to family, geography, work, uh, community, tradition or anything else. Um, and then the, the kind of, 
the imperative to be the best version of yourself when you know nothing about who you are because all of those things, all those ties have been destroyed. And, <laughs> and nevertheless, you know, you live in this kind of virtual imagistic identitarian horror show in which people are kind of endlessly sending out little pictures of themselves saying like, I'm being my best version of myself. Um, and <laughs> but, but it's completely groundless, which would, would account for the kind of proliferation, the desperation in the, the need to kind of um, demonstrate. Because if you sort of knew who you were, you wouldn't need to tell people constantly. <laughs> absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, obviously this whole commodification of have, having to be a good member of a certain class in order to have your certain job and, you know, the other thing is, you know, time comes into this a lot and how we every, everything is precarious, everything is marketized. And so at every stage, one has to sell one's soul to conforming or to searching with what one's doing, you know, for, for, for an identity that you can sell back to the market or you can sell back to yourself. And yeah, I think everybody is just grasping and whether you're delineating yourself as this or an antagonist to that, or it does speak to a, a, a huge, a huge precarity. Yeah, you're told you're supposed to find yourself. and yet you don't have any of the things which would give you a meaningful identity. So all you can really do is just accumulate crap that you can put on your body as signs to the world that I'm interesting, I have something going on, but it's just a bunch of crap that's on your body. It doesn't mean anything. All right, we have come up to about an hour. So we're going to go over and do the B-side, the Patreon episode for our listeners over there. And you can go over there if you support us. And if you don't support us, you can go over there and start supporting us if you're up for it. And we thank you so much for listening. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.